0: Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to Aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering a woman whose very existence has a big question mark next to it. Shemu ramat sometimes referred to as Semiramis, is said to be a queen who ruled over the ancient Neo-Assyrian Empire around 811 BCE. Her reign, even her very existence, is shrouded somewhat in mystery and legend, but today we're going to explore the tales surrounding her. A quick note, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. In addition to the full transcript, you can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out. All right, let's hop back in time. I think the best place to start is the legend of Semiramis. The ancient Greek historian Diodorus Siculus wrote about her in his Library of History, Volume 2. He spent three chapters on her, so I'm not going to quote it all here, but the broad stroke should do. According to Diodorus, Semiramis was born to a mortal Assyrian man and a beautiful Assyrian goddess, Dirketo. But Dirketo had been tricked into this union, a victim of Aphrodite's jealousy over her beauty. When Durcheto realized that she had slept with a mortal and gave birth to a mortal daughter, she killed the man and abandoned the newborn on some sort of rocky outcropping and then threw herself into a lake where her humiliation was complete when Aphrodite changed her body into the body of a fish. However, according to Diodorus' telling, where the baby had been abandoned, quote, a great multitude of doves had their nests, and by them the child was nurtured in an astounding and miraculous manner. For some of the doves kept the body of the babe warm on all sides by covering it with their wings, while others, when they observed that the cowherds and other keepers were absent from the nearby steadings, brought milk there from in their beaks and fed the babe by putting it drop by drop between its lips." When the child was a year old and in need of more solid nourishment, the doves, pecking off bits from the cheeses, supplied it with sufficient nourishment. Now when the keepers returned and saw that the cheeses had been nibbled about the edges, they were astonished at the strange happening. They accordingly kept a lookout and on discovering the cause, found the infant, which was of surpassing beauty. At once then, bringing it to their settings, they turned it over to the keeper of the royal herds, whose name was Seamus. And Semis, being childless, gave every care to the rearing of the girl as his own daughter, and called her Samiramis, a name slightly altered from the word, which, in the language of the Syrians, means doves, birds, which since that time all the inhabitants of Syria have continued to honor as goddesses. End quote. So Samiramis grew up in this pastoral haven. When she was a young teenager, an officer from the court named Ones was sent to inspect Semis's royal herds and fell in love with his adopted daughter. He convinced Simus to let him marry Semiramis and off they went. This is when Semiramis showed a touch of divine power. Not only had she grown up to be very beautiful, but she also had a way of ensnaring men's attention so she could convince them to do almost anything. Predictably, Onus became completely unable to do anything without her guidance, but because her guidance was good, he became very prosperous. Years later, the king of Assyria and legendary founder of Nineveh, Ninus, went to war with Bactriana, a kingdom he wanted to conquer. Onus, by then a trusted officer in Ninus' army, was sent to lead a faction in the siege of the capital city, Bactra. The siege was long, and Onus, unable to be parted from Semiramis for such an extended period of time, sent for her to come to Bactriana and advise him in the siege. Semiramis, so quote, endowed as she was with understanding, daring, and all the other qualities which contribute to distinction, seized the opportunity to display her native ability. First, in order to travel there safely, she created a new type of clothing, which would make it impossible to distinguish whether she was a man or a woman. The clothing allowed her to travel safely and, quote, do whatever she might wish to do, since it was quite pliable and suitable to a young person, and in a word, was so attractive that in later times the Medes, who were then dominant in Asia, always wore the garb of Samiramis, as did the Persians after them. According to a historian at the University of Chicago, this outfit that she invented apparently covered the head and consisted of a long coat with large sleeves, loose trousers, and boots. It was, apparently, not well-liked with the ancient Greeks because it seemed too effeminate to them. When she arrived, Semiramis found her husband and Ninus's army to be something of a standstill. Not content to simply advise her husband on how to effectively win the siege, Semiramis used her new clothing to disguise herself as a soldier and led another group of soldiers to climb a steep and rocky area that no one else had dared to climb. By entering the city this way, they were able to take enough of the capital that the other king surrendered, and Nynas' war was won. At first, Ninus was amazed and grateful to this woman who had basically single-handedly won him this conquest, when all his trusted generals couldn't. And then, the more he got to know her, he fell in love with her. He approached Onus and begged him to allow Ninus to marry her, even offering his own daughter's hand in marriage, which would have made Onus a prince who could have inherited the throne himself someday. But Onus was not impressed and loved his wife, so he said no. So then Ninus threatened to put out his eyes if Onus didn't give up Samiramis. Onus, either out of fear or love, hanged himself, and Ninus was free to marry Semiramis, and now she was queen of the Empire of Assyria. Together, they had a son, Ninyas, and then, almost as quickly as he'd fallen in love with her, Ninus died. According to Diodorus, Ninus left his wife the throne, and she simply ascended as queen. But others say that Semiramis disguised herself as their son to take control of the throne herself. It wouldn't have been possible for a woman to ascend to the throne in ancient Assyria, but Diodorus doesn't really address this or how she got around it. Maybe we're supposed to assume that it was like her divine power of persuasion from that, like her divine bloodline that let her ascend. I'm, I'm not sure. Nevertheless, he tells us how Semiramis used her new position and wealth to either build or restore the city of Babylon. She built grand palaces, reservoirs for drinking water, walls to confine the Euphrates River, and temples to Zeus, who the Babylonians called Belus. Diodorus even gives her credit for the famous Hanging Garden of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. She built other trading posts in other cities to encourage trade. Once her capital was established and her power centralized, it's said that she toured around the kingdom of Assyria. Then she began to expand it, conquering large swaths of Europe, Asia, and Africa, going into the modern-day Balkans and modern-day China, and extending as far southwest as modern Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia. While in Egypt, she apparently sought out the Oracle of Amman, asking how she would die. She was told that quote, she would disappear from among men and receive undying honor among some of the peoples of Asia, and that this would take place when her son Ninya should conspire against her. She left, and after this she tried to conquer India, but she lost nearly two-thirds of her military, was very badly wounded, and had to return back to Babylon at a loss. When she returned home, her son conspired against her through a, quote, certain eunuch, though the man is never named. Rather than arrest him or punish him in any way, she willingly turned the kingdom over to him, commanding that her governors obey him. And then, Semiramis disappeared. Some say that she became a dove and flew away, back to the creatures who had cared for her during infancy. Others say she ascended to the heavens to be among her divine brethren. Her son, Ninius, ascended to the throne and ruled peacefully over the empire his parents had established for 30 years. Semiramis was was said to be 62 at the time of her disappearance and had ruled for 42 years. That's the legend, at least, according to Diodorus. Now he's not the only one. Over 80 different ancient writers mentioned Semiramis in some way. For instance, Roman historian, ooh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong and I'm sorry in advance, For instance, Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus credits her as the first ruler to castrate a male youth and make him a eunuch. Armenian tradition presents her more negatively, saying that after the death of Ninus, she fell in love with the Armenian king Ara the Handsome. When he refused to marry her, she invaded Armenia and he was killed. So clearly, her story, or at least her existence, was well known. But the retellings of her story and those embellishments on it obscure a lot of the reality around her because we do know that some version of her was real, I actually suspect that some of these embellishments were created by her during her lifetime. I mean, I get it. Everyone wants to rewrite their origin story to be more glamorous, right? But come on, doves feeding her for a year? I have my doubts. But I say that she probably encouraged some of this myth-making of herself because giving herself a divine bloodline and building up her reputation with stories like being raised by doves and single-handedly conquering a city would have been important for her to centralize power around herself. After all, if she could make it look like it was divine will that she ruled over Assyria, then questions around whether women could rule become less important. How do you argue with the gods? Right after this break we'll take a look at the more historical version of Semiramis, or Shemurama. All right, and we're back. First up, the confusion around her name, Semiramis versus Shemurama, stems from thousands of years having passed, plus repeated translations back and forth through time, right? Semiramis may be a Greek language disambiguation of Shemurama, which is in itself a Hellenized version of the Assyrian pronunciation. From the research I did, it seems like her real name might mean high heaven, but no one is quite sure. Britannica's entry on her is short and focuses on the legend that Diodorus told of her, which, you know, I just went over. All that is accepted as fact, at least by the encyclopedia, is the following. Quote, was the mother of the Assyrian king Adad-Nirari III, reigned 810 to 783 BC. Her stella, or memorial stone shaft, has been found at Ashur, while an inscription at Kala Nimrud seems, shows her to have been dominant there after the death of her husband, Shamshi Adad V, 823-811 BCE. As you probably noticed, there's no mention of divine lineage or doves here. Her background isn't well established at all, and some historians tend to think that she was probably like a princess of a smaller kingdom whose name has been lost to time. One thing we do know for sure is that she entered the historical record at a pivotal time. According to National Geographic, quote, her husband was the grandson of Assyria's great ruler, Ashurnasirpal, a flamboyant monarch who built a magnificent palace at Nimrud in the early 9th century BCE. This event is commemorated by the banquet Stella, which recorded thousands of guests in a celebration that lasted for 10 days. Ashur Nasirpal II stabilized the empire, putting down revolts with a level of cruelty that he made no attempt to hide. When Shemu Rahmat's husband, Shamshi Adad, ascended the throne, he had to defeat his rebellious older brother. The empire was weakened by internal strife, and by the time he died in 811 BCE, the financial and political weaknesses of the empire were great enough to actually threaten its future. Adad-Nirari would have been too young to rule and needed some kind of regent or guidance, it's unclear whether Shemurama actually became a formal regent or if she just sort of was very powerful and therefore influenced a lot of things. Either way, it's very clear that in the years between the death of her husband and her son becoming old and mature enough to actually rule on his own, Ramat was very, very influential. The Stella that Britannica noted is incredibly important because it tells us just how important this woman was. It was a Stella that her son dedicated to her, and he explicitly lists her as his mother, which, in addition to just being a little touching, was also very out of the ordinary. Lineage in ancient Assyria, like many other places, was determined through the paternal line. A mother's name was often not recorded because it didn't matter, especially for things like determining a king's lineage. But the seller reads Shamurama, queen of Shamshi Adad, king of the universe, king of Assyria, mother of Adad Nirari, king of the universe, king of Assyria. Obviously, she was too important to have been ignored. The queens of the Neo Assyrian Empire did hold some power on their own. They controlled their own finances and often owned estates within the empire. They hired their own staff, which were usually overseen by female administrators called Sakintu. Queens were also responsible for a lot of religious activity, sponsoring temples and ensuring that the gods were being honored correctly. But Shemurama seems to have been uniquely powerful even by this standard. Not many queens joined military campaigns, and it is agreed upon by a lot of historians that Shemurama at least joined her husband and son on military campaigns, if not actually led her own. The Kiskapan Stella mentions, quote, that the queen accompanied her son when he crossed the Euphrates River to fight against the king of the Assyrian city of Arpad, her presence was unusual for the time, and the fact that the Sela bothers to mention her participation gives Shemu Ramat's actions a strong degree of honor and respect. So, I mean, this is proof that she really did wield power, at least similarly to a regent, though probably not for the 42 years that Diodorus proposed. It's more likely she was regent for about five Unfortunately, that's about where our confirmed knowledge of her ends, but something about Shemurama sticks in our minds, and her name and likeness have been used throughout time as a shorthand for all sorts of ideologies. Historians, artists, and anyone with an agenda stumbles across her occasionally and brings her into a conversation. Sometimes she's cast as a powerful feminist icon, and other times she's the whore of Babylon. Literally. (laughs) Sometime during the Middle Ages, the legend of Semiramis suddenly became associated with promiscuity and lust. A Roman priest and historian, Orosius, wrote about her in his history, Seven Books of History Against the Pagans, which is just 4th century propaganda. He claimed that she had an incestuous relationship with her son, something no one else was claiming. But then, a thousand years later, maybe influenced by Orosius, Dante included her in his Divine Comedy, Among the Souls of the Lustful in the Second Circle of Hell. She's also mentioned by Shakespeare in both Titus Andronicus and The Taming of the Shrew. During the Renaissance, her reputation did partly recover, but she's weirdly still a subject of discussion in, like, deeply evangelical circles. In 1853, Christian minister Alexander Hislop wrote about her in his book The Two Babylons, casting her as the Whore of Babylon. He claimed that she invented polytheism and that the head of the Catholic Church, then Pope Pius IX, was continuing a millennia-long secret conspiracy founded by Semiramis and the biblical king Nimrod to bring back the religion of ancient Babylon. He claimed that Semiramis was Nimrod's mother and had encouraged him to build the Tower of Babel and that they had had an incestuous relationship and their child was the deity Tammuz, or Dumuzid, an ancient Mesopotamian god associated with shepherds. Critics and historians have dismissed all of this as speculation, fear-mongering, and Hislop trying to write about a culture based on texts that he literally didn't understand because he couldn't read the language. However, this version of this myth is still accepted among evangelical Protestants and circulates today. But I want to be clear, it's based on speculations of some dude who couldn't read the language he was sourcing from. It's crap. There's no supporting evidence for Hislop's claims, and nothing in the historical record ties her to Nimrod At all. However, these claims have influenced how she's been portrayed in recent pop culture. There was a 1954 film called Queen of Babylon that portrayed her as one of Love's seven wonders of the ancient world. Zero points for guessing how overly sexualized she clearly was in it. I mean, it sounds like porn, right? Then in 1963, a film called I Am Semiramis takes the legend Diodorus wrote and runs with it, casting her as in love with a slave named Kir, who she forces to help build the city of Babylon. There's a rebellion, and from the summary, it seems like everyone dies, though to be clear, I haven't watched it. And that's sort of the story of Samiramis. <laughs> it's a it's a it's like I said, very shrouded in mystery. There's more questions than there are answers. Um but it's clear that she was influential in the Neo-Assyrian Empire and her name and the legend of her lives on. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Unruly Figures. If you did, tell at least one friend about it. That does really help. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me. All by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate this show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly.